You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Weird Science Marvel Comics Podcast. I'm Jim. I am your host for all of these festivities where we're going to go through a bunch of books from this week, weeks past, and who knows? Who knows where we'll end up by the end of this show? We did have a big new number one a couple weeks ago, The Gardens of the Galaxy, that we will start off with, but we'll also get to some books that people think are a big number two, like the latest Amazing Spider-Man. That is a joke. But before we go off to that, please go over to Twitter and follow us at WS Marvel Comics. The WS stands for Weird Science. It all works out. You follow us, we'll follow you back. Then go to our website, WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com, where you can get reviews for a lot of the issues that come out each and every week. And although Gabe ended up giving the Predator number one a 9 out of 10, we're not going to hold that against him. At least you should I do, but you shouldn't. Other than that, go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash weirdscience, where you can help us out for all the shows here on this Marvel feed, the X-Men show, the Star Wars show, and then this main comic book show, and then also get a ton of other shows on the Patreon that you may be interested in, a lot of Marvel stuff, but some indie stuff, DC, manga, all that all rolled up into one. You can check it out, and recently... Patreon did allow now to have these kind of previews, five-minute previews or whatnot for each show. So you can go out and check out the beginnings of each and every show, see if it's for you. I end up doing most of the shows with guest hosts throughout. So I think that there's always something over there that you might enjoy. But with all that said and done, let's get on to these books. I already said that the big number one, The Guardians of the Galaxy from Lansing and Kelly, is what we'll end up starting out with. Now, I like the book, but I got a lot of shade for this review already. And I don't know why, because I didn't think I was that harsh. But let's see. You could be the judge. But let's start off the podcast. We'll kick in with The Guardians of the Galaxy. Number one, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Kelly and Lansing, they are like the Martin and Lewis of the comic book set. They really aren't. But I wanted to say that. Art by Kev Walker. Colors by Matt Hollinsworth. Letters by VCs. Corey Petit, this new Guardians of the Galaxy starts out with a pulp western vibe to it, and while there is a cloud of misery hovering over just about everything in the issue, when push comes to shove, we see that family isn't just a thing for those who are fast and or furious, but by the end, those ties will be tested when the family tree becomes a planet-eating monster. I already mentioned the western feel of this comic, and that's not me speaking metaphorically i'm not a fancy man like that this issue actually opens up with a lone rider entering the town of solitude on the planet of galilee 4 it's immediately apparent that it's star lord and then a young alien lets him know that salvation is at hand because star lord has risen and it's kind of a neat little way to start and tie into things as we go forward now things go sideways really quickly as the local sheriff confronts Peter before Gamora gets involved, and away we go. And there's not much setup to anything going on here as Lansing and Kelly plops us into an already happening story, and we're going to have to figure it out as we go. I don't mind that at all, and really, the issue is mainly focused on getting the gang back together, so this is kind of a neat way 
to make it feel like, okay, it's a lived-in universe, the background, all of that has already happened, we're going to have to figure things out. I actually do like that sort of thing if it plays out well, and this plays out well enough so far. I usually like Kev Walker's art, but I'm not sure his cartoony style fits the grit and grime that this issue tries to focus on. It may fit better as the series progresses and we change up locales and scenery. Though one thing that did bother me a lot about the art, the very close-up and tight angles throughout the issue. Some of the scenes become a bit more confusing than they need to be. An example is when Gamora takes down the local sheriff at the beginning of the issue. And I get the Western play of showing close-ups of everyone's faces and eyes now and again. That is a trope of any sort of Western. But some of the big scenes fall a bit flat because of the lack of scope especially when we get to the end. Now, as far as getting the team back together, we quickly get Nebula, Mantis, and eventually Drax joining in on the fun here as some local ruffians, some local toughs show up to cause trouble, and it sets up a giant fight. It's pretty much the middle of town, okay, corral-esque type of thing, and it fits the overall vibe and story. Now, I do think that Lansing and Kelly cloudy up the main story a bit here because this start, it really feels like you're getting the overdone and cliched seven samurai type thing from this. And I know there's way worse ways to get the Guardians back together, though. But while that wasn't that exciting three quarters of the way through the issue, the ending is the selling point of this whole shebang. And the twist is, is these guys who show up to cause trouble. They're kind of just a minor, unfortunate distraction as we get to see the bigger threat, which is group fall. And it is something really big. It's something that, oh, my God, you know, Groot was not around. Where's Groot? Oh, my God. He's going to eat the planet. It's really crazy. And it really does set up some excitement as you get to the end of the issue and the guardians are desperately trying to get the villagers off the planet before group kills them all and by the end i'm not so sure that they were 100 percent successful it looks like they had some problems but here's the thing again this is what i talked about earlier i wish the art was a bit better here and you know it's good panel to panel but the scope and and the close-ups it really didn't show the true scope of this Groot fall and what is going on with Groot. I wanted to see, you know, the size difference and how menacing this was. And when you end up seeing them on the page, it doesn't play out as well as I think it should have. But Guardians of the Galaxy number one starts out, it starts out a bit slow. But with the Western vibe, I think that's on purpose. I think that you're playing it pretty methodical at the beginning setting some things up in that western type of way things definitely pick up though by the end and the questions that are left hanging like what the hell is going on with Groot, are really intriguing and will have me picking up and reviewing the next issue now i saw one reviewer already say that this is the start of an all-time great story and i don't know either they're high stupid or have some sort of crystal ball i don't know column a column b i was Pleasantly surprised myself, though, by the end. I'm not going to jump to these crazy conclusions, but I already talked about my problems with the art, but of course, that's the most subjective part of comics. So your mileage may vary. So you may like this more than me. 
if you really do like the art. And I saw some people liking the art, and that's up to everybody to decide on their own. But for me personally, overall, I'm giving this a 7.8. It's a solid start. And like I said, by the end, I'm really intrigued of what's going on. I think there's a cool vibe going on. It's even a bit fun by the end. I'll be back to read and review the next issue. And really, isn't that what it's all about? Getting us excited for the next issue. So I think that this was a pretty good start overall. But we'll move on to an issue that a lot of people are a little upset about. It's kind of the beginning of what looks to be even more upsetness coming down the line, if that is a word. I don't know. Again, I'm not a fancy man, but of course I'm talking about The Amazing Spider-Man number 24. I don't know about you all, but I am not a huge fan of Nicholas Lipinski of Lebanon, New Hampshire. And you may say, who the hell is Nicholas Lipinski? And, And what is Lebanon, New Hampshire? I mean, seriously. Well, first off, You should maybe take some geography lessons, but I'll tell you, Nicholas Lipinski, he is a guy who has a letter in the back of this issue, and he says that he does not think that Peter and Mary Jane should ever get together. And it feels a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's also a weird and ominous thing coming after you read this issue. And I mean, it couldn't possibly be a fake letter, right? I mean, it really couldn't be, but whether it is or not, I don't think Nicholas has anything to worry because Marvel, Zeb Wells, and editor Nicholas Lowe eh, seem to be writing this story for him and possibly only for him. So congratulations, Nicholas Lipinski of Lebanon, New Hampshire. You done got the story that you and you alone want. We'll kick off this with the credits and a little bit of the recap. It is The Amazing Spider-Man number 24, written by Zeb Wells, pencils by John Remedy Jr., Inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcelo Menez, and letters by VCs. Joe Caramagna, Peter and his girlfriend Mary Jane Watson were transported to an alternate universe by the mad mathematician Benjamin Rabin, a.k.a. the Emissary. And when you are the mad mathematician, you better have an a.k.a. Because you go and tell somebody you're the mad mathematician, you're getting laughed out of whatever room you're in. It's nonsense. And as I like to say, the kids say, Hogwash. As Rabin was about to transcend to godhood, as most mad mathematicians do, using Spider-Man's totem energy, MJ made the hard choice to save Peter instead of herself. That might be a little foreshadowing, sending him back to their own dimension on a one-way trip, leaving her and a mysterious man named Paul stranded back in his home dimension. Peter's trip caused a nearly nuclear explosion, and Peter learned that while a week had passed in the dimension Rabin had trapped him in, Not even a day had passed at home. Now, I will just say right away, when you end up having a recap that says Peter's trip caused a nearly nuclear explosion, you know what that means? It didn't do crap because you're not going to go back to that. It's just that that whole deal of people have to be after Peter so Cap can go and try to get him and then he can piss off Cap. I mean, a nearly nuclear explosion. This issue, I could say, was nearly good, right? There you go. Knowing time was not on his side, Peter attempted to get the Fantastic Four's help, but when they attempted to hold him for details, you know, like, what are you doing? He doesn't have time for that. He got time for that. About his explosive situation, Peter went on the run. Captain America was the next hero to try and get Spider-Man to slow down and explain himself, which ended with Spidey assaulting and escaping from Cap. 
Realizing none of his usual allies would be able to help him fast enough, I don't know if he really gave them a shot, but hey, Peter turned to someone whose morals tend to be looser, Norman Osborn. So you have all this set up, and you do get the answer to, man, why does everybody hate Peter? I was worried that it was just because he almost blew up York PA. But really what that was was he didn't finish the job. But when you get into all this, it's that he ended up, you know, dissing some people. I know he beat Cap up a bit, so Cap might have a problem. He seemed to be the least one to have a problem, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But here we go. We ended last issue with Peter going to Norman Osborn for some last-ditch Hail Mary help to save Mary Jane. And we jump into this issue pretty much on the run. Peter has gone back to the Baxter building. This time to steal a mini fusion reactor because, you know, when you get these dimension hopping suits, you need a battery. And there's no time for Peter to explain things. As we said, even though Reed is back from Tarnax, but he's already got the plan going, there's no time. So he has to end up pretty much acting like a jerk. And I understand that. I talked about it before and even in the comments of the last issue's review. And I do understand it. But I wish that Peter kind of played out more of the. You know, I'm desperate, please. You know, there's nothing like that. It's really just straight up jerk because Zeb Wells has pushed the idea that everybody now hates Peter. And you have to remember, again, that this stuff that's happening, this is a year ago in the timeline. So you have to keep that in mind as well. And I wish they would have spelled that out a little more in that recap. But he comes off like with big, big cock energy going on instead of saying, please, you don't understand. I can't talk right now. Mary Jane's in trouble and I need to do this right away. Maybe that might have been a better way to do it, but he's freaking out. So we'll we'll let him go on that. And really, my biggest problem is not that everybody hates Peter. Peter's acting like a jerk. My biggest problem is what's going on with Mary Jane. So what ends up happening is Peter webs up Ben and Reed, ditches Johnny, and then heads off to the one place that might be worse than York, PA, and that's New Jersey. Take that. And you end up where. Once you hear New Jersey, and it's a weird play, I get it that Norman can't really have his labs different places. He's got to go out of New York City. But once I hear New Jersey, and I swear to God, I'm surprised they just didn't say Jersey City right away. I just thought we're going to get Miss Marvel. Miss Marvel has shown up in this run of Zeb Wells in the weirdest way to not ever really do that much, just to be there. And so when I see New Jersey, I'm like, is this going to be... Another crazy thing. Yep, Zeb Wells, he didn't let me down. There she goes. We have her peeking in windows, right? Creeping around. We also get, though, a pretty cool Osborne Parker dimension hopping mecha spider suit with a lot of R&D behind it, but quickly a desperate Peter Parker in it. And after a slight bit of protesting that really, it's a Willy Wonka protest by Norman, Peter is off and on his way. I will say right now, at this point, I really was enjoying the John Romita Jr. art. I'm not the biggest John Romita Jr. fan, but that scene with the Fantastic Four, I thought it looked fantastic. Not to even be uh, joking about it. I thought it looked really good, and I love the look of that suit. I don't know how everybody else will feel about that, but I thought it looked really cool. So up until this point, this issue has a forced let's get this over with to get to the bigger next issues feel. It also felt a bit padded as well, because besides pissing off the Fantastic Four again, I guess you have to piss off Reed and Sue as well because they're back. 
nothing really happens that much in the first three quarters of the issue. And I, I'm not saying that things don't happen. They do get pretty much the battery, put it in the suit. We have the suit. But the suit was already made off panel. We just get into this. And one of the things that I think where it feels forced in this issue is you have some big things happening. But they don't feel big because they just end up succeeding without much tension at all. I got to go get a battery. I get a battery. I have a suit that, oh, this might not work. Nope, it works. And so everything just lines up and just feels very rushed, very quick. And like I said, even things that are very easy seem to just be padded out a couple more panels and pages. But I say that we still end up with some fun, though. And it was when we get back to Mary Jane. That things go wrong after talking some interdimensional shit. I mean, Rabin's there in this interdimensional way, just talking total crap on Peter. It's like the Kevin Garnett of the multiverse here, the Larry Bird even, just talking crap. So you end up having all that. Rabin then just gets taken out. And and that's just it. He ends up where it's almost like a side thing that you barely even realize what's happening. Oh, my God. They already Mary Jane split, you know, the whole deal of why up in half last issue with kind of like, oh, whoopsie. It didn't mean to split a God in half. Now it's like almost that Rabin like backs up and kills him. It's it's very odd the way. So this is what I would say to Zeb Wells, at least pretend that your villain, while he is a mad mathematician, which I mean, that's ridiculous. But pretend that he's something other than a means to an end to give a shitty answer to your shitty story. All this is to give the shitty deal of how and why this all happened with Mary Jane. And Rabin was just a tool to give Mary Jane a husband and kids. That's all it was. And though the biggest tools here are Zeb Wells for writing the story and me for actually hoping that somehow this would end up being at least a decent enough story. but. We find out all the answers here. I mean, for now, Mary Jane's been stuck with Paul for years now because of the time deal. I said this. I'm not a smart man. I saw this coming from a mile away way back and said that. And that's all it is. Now, with that, though, these kids are full out real, even though John Romita Jr. thinks that they should look like freaky bobbleheads. They are weird looking. And all of the praise that I gave John Romita Jr. up until this point. I pull back at least for the kids. Holy moly, they look freaky. They really do. But this is a quick read with an obvious ending, all that. And why does it piss me off so much? Because I still held hope that Zeb Wells was slightly better than this. And spoiler alert, guess he's not. So we're getting answers. We're finally getting answers to what the hell has been going on in the background of Zeb Wells' run since he started on this book, right? While it's about time. After reading this issue, I was actually left with a bigger question, and this is the question I'm going to pose to everybody listening right now. Do we actually want the answers, or you know, did we want the solution? Did we want to find out what had gone on with Mary Jane? Why does Mary Jane have a husband and kids? Did we just want to know the answer, or did we, most of us, want it to be fixed when we got the answer? The idea that, okay, this is what it was, but it's fixed now. I get it. Let's go. Because I wanted that. I didn't really, you know, by the point where here, oh, this is what happened. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, Mary Jane has a husband and kids. No, no, no. That's not what I wanted. This isn't exactly the thing that I think most people wanted at this point. But maybe we'll still find out something that wasn't real. I see a lot of people 
guessing on things. And I really do think that a lot of people are right. I do believe that this ends with Mary Jane dead. I really do fear that all of this means Mary Jane will die. She'll sacrifice herself to save everyone. She already did it. And the way that they play it out, even in the recap of Mary Jane thought, you know, not of herself, but she wanted to say Peter pushed him through the portal. She's already almost given up there and, you know, taken the deal. I think that she's going to do that. And I think people will lose their minds. And after this issue, I wonder how or even if Zeb Wells is planning on getting rid of this nonsense. Uh, but I have to admit, when issue number 25 comes out, I, it will be the first book I read. It's not because I think it's great or I even think that issue will be good. It's because I'm afraid that it's going to get worse. That's why. And so whether or not that is the evil plan, I do want to read the next couple issues. I do have to find out how this ends. And you know, I'm just worried. And that's why it's more of a car wreck than me actually you know, looking forward to something I enjoy reading. This was a quick read, but I'm not going to tell you by the end. I was really excited or enjoying it. But all in all, with the art, with that, even with the bobblehead kids, what I'm still, I'm going to give this a 5.5. It's almost at just a 5, but I'm going to go to a 5.5 out of 10 because if you end up, it's a weird play. I thought that the scenes in the Baxter building, they were kind of, but they do they fit in here? It's a weird deal going on and whatnot. And I think that, this issue was supposed to be a little bit more fun until we get to like the 25 and 26 where all hell's going to break loose. And I do worry uh, that they're not reading the room. And I, I did have some people and we were talking about the idea, would Zeb Wells want to go down as the guy who killed Mary Jane? Well, not many people really know Zeb Wells. Not many people are even aware that he was on Spider-Man books for a lot way back 10, 15 years ago. So if you're going to be remembered, what does it matter if it's remembered for something great or something horrible? I think a lot of people just want to be remembered. So I think that he may do it. I think that Mary Jane may end up dying, but we'll see. Well, they never want Peter and MJ back on track. Nick Spencer tried to do it, but then in the end they pulled it back. Get rid of one more day. Pretend they're going to do it, but that just won't cap. Why do they keep treating fans like crap? Get rid of one more day In the Spidey offices they sit and laugh at fans Everybody wants a set, maybe a few once they see stands Get rid of one more day Get rid of one more day Hollow's Eve number two. The first issue of Hollow's Eve really surprised me with how much fun I had reading it. The whole Halloween mask thing had me rolling my eyes a bit at first, but Erica Schultz's fast-paced and fun issue had me thinking this book could actually be a bit of a hidden gem. I guess it still could be, but after this issue, it's going to take a bit more work to get back to that place. This one is a little rough. Here are the credits and the recap it is again hollow's eve number two written by erica schultz art by michael dowling colors by brian reber and letters by vc's joe caramagna while stealthily robbing a bank janine was discovered by a lowly security guard and that that's shade there poor simon the guy's just trying to earn a living you a security guard now you're calling him a lowly security guard i mean i don't know his whole situation here with the help of her werewolf mask, Janine was able to quickly subdue the guard and escape. 
but Janine soon learned there are consequences to her masks. Not robbing a bank or anything, just the masks. As the scratch she gave him transformed the security guard into a werewolf himself as the moon rose that evening. Now he's on the loose, and it's up to Hallow's Eve to right her wrongs. But she's not the only one searching for the wayward werewolf. Detective Sherry Sevens is investigating the supernatural bank robbery for the police, and Maxine Danger and the Beyond Corporation are also slithering out of the woodwork, intrigued by the reports of a werewolf robbing a bank during the day. Stepping out into the field, Maxine infiltrated the crime scene and gathered DNA for her own investigation. Gathering DNA, not as sexy as that might sound. It really isn't. But the whole idea of this Beyond Corporation, I like the thing where they slither out because they hear about a werewolf robbing a bank in daylight, right? That's going to intrigue them to kind of come out of the woodwork. Not talking mailboxes, sandwiches, nonsense that we had during the dark web. I mean, he ended up, the Beyond Corporation disappeared for one reason. Because they really were at fault with taking Ben Riley's memories. And if the Beyond Corporation was still around, you wouldn't have had that nonsense limbo crap going on in the dark web. Because Peter and Ben would have went right to Beyond and taken it to the streets there. You can't have that because of that wacky story. So they disappear only to come back here. It felt weird last issue, but we'll go with it. I did find it odd, but I found it oddly nice to see my man Marcus again in this issue. And Marcus was Maxine's kind of right-hand man during the Beyond stuff. And I didn't think that I liked him that much. But when I saw him here, I actually had a smile on my face. Now, he looks pretty bored, though. He's doing some remote tech help thing when Janine busts in the window with her black cat mask on. Now, I would have thought that mask would make you a sexy leather-clad gal looking for a heist, but sadly it makes you an actual big giant black cat, and while that might be sexy to all you furries out there, hashtag your kink your business, Marcus might have crapped his pants here, Hashtag your kink, your business. Now, while Janine explains the whole situation, masks, what happened, she kind of pushes aside the whole Ben Riley situation and doesn't really answer when you have Marcus ask about him. But while that's going on, we see Maxine Danger is still on the werewolf case as well. Now, the big problem with this issue, that werewolf case is not very interesting. Since Maxine and her Beyond cronies can't find Janine, they center on that quote-unquote lowly security guard who just happens to be doing his job trying to raise a family and everybody's got to throw shade at him. But the thing is, you know that Maxine, if she finds him, she's going to want to do very bad things to him. Hashtag her kink, her business. Of course, Janine also wants to find him. We heard that in the recap because she wants to say she's sorry. She feels responsible for turning him into the werewolf, but she also wants to check out how this ended up happening. How could a mask end up giving somebody the whole werewolf deal? She wants to know about that as well. And you know it's just a matter of time before paths are crossed. Unfortunately, that matter of time is a bit of a slog to get through. Janine ends up putting on a police officer mask, And after a very slight bit of social commentary, she heads to the security guard's house, you know, lowly Simon, and she runs right into Detective Sevens there. Who would have thunk it? The two of them talk to the guard's wife, 
Look at some family photos. Search his workshop. I mean, they are going a who's who and a where's where of this house, only then to get calls from dispatch to say, oh, yeah, we found the werewolf at the Moonlight Marina. And we've already seen the werewolf security guard, Simon, out and about. We know he's not at the house, and they don't really find anything at the house. There's no reason at all for this scene except to show that Janine feels bad for Simon's wife and gives her a hug, says, we'll bring him back, something that Seven says, yeah, ixnay on that A. You you shouldn't do that. She doesn't really speak pig Latin, but she probably should. It'd be pretty cool. Now, after separating herself from Seven's then, Janine uses her vampire mask, which she said earlier she didn't really want to do because it gives her the hungers, and flies off to find the security guard. At this point, though, he's already drugged up and in the back of a stealth-enhanced armored car. So what are we going to do? But what the hell is that to a Halloween mask wearing Dracula? You know what I'm saying? It means nothing. The issue ends with a scene that is only missing a here's Johnny to really make it complete as you end up having Dracula version of Janine fly in, rip open the armored car top and stick her head in. Pretty funny. It seemed that Erica Schultz left most of the fun behind to give readers a poorly paced and kind of boring issue here. The ending does set up an interesting premise. And what I'm saying is it's straight up Twilight shit going on here. Vampire, werewolf, that's what I'm all about. But this issue was boring, but I'm interested to see some Twilight shit next time. Also, you end up having a bunch of guards and we'll have to see if Janine can handle the vampire hunger. That that mask is bound to give her But focusing so much In this issue on a rando security guard Whether he's lowly or not With a lycanthrope issue Is a bold move, Cotton It didn't work out that well here But we'll have to wait to see what it does Going forward, just as an aside Hashtag Team Jacob The art was a bit uneven throughout this issue But it really didn't ruin anything And Michael Dowling did step it up when the big scenes needed it, the problem was there really weren't a lot of big scenes, one of the problems with this issue. So overall, I'm going to give Hallow's Eve number two a six out of ten. And boy, I'm looking forward to some Twilight stuff next issue. We'll see if we get it. I doubt it, but I hope. All right, and let's move on to the final book of the night. And that is a book that I've actually enjoyed. I don't have a lot of people talking to me about it. But I really like it because I, well, I don't really like saying normie, as you'll hear me say, but this is a book that I enjoy. Red Goblin number three is written by Alex Pacnadal with art by Jan Balzadwea, colors by David Coriel and VCs Joe Caramagna on letters. While I feel silly saying normie so much when reviewing this book, I have liked this Red Goblin series so far. Alex Pacnadal is not only showing us the burgeoning relationship of Normie and his symbiote rascal, but to me this book is giving readers a more realistic view of a Norman Osborn who wants to do better but can't escape his sins of the past, and I'm sorry about that one. The play here is that Normie can't escape them either, and by the end I hope they can each help each other out and become better in their own way. So let's see if Normie can save his hurt grandfather from the clutches of Phil Urich and the Goblin Nation, but let's hit the recap right now. 
as if Normie's life weren't complicated enough, he's caring for a fledgling symbiote called Rascal. Although Normie is wary of bonding with the bloodthirsty Rascal, the two are becoming increasingly attached as Normie uses Rascal's abilities to engage in superheroics. Meanwhile, beneath the streets, the Goblin Nation is on the rise, led by Phil Urich, a.k.a. the Goblin King, who's back from the dead and seeking revenge against the person who killed him, Norman Osborn. The Goblin King kidnapped Norman and used his blood to reverse-engineer a goblin formula for him and his followers. Normie and Rascal embarked on a mission to save Norman, and now a souped-up goblin nation stands between them and the exit. To get out alive, Normie might have to unleash the full power of the terrifying Red Goblin. Now, is he going to do that? Well, let's see. The issue opens with a flashback to show that a couple years ago, Norman Osborn wasn't the type of guy to give you the shirt off his back or even his third shoe. He's kind of a piece of crap, and he's trying to teach Normie how to be a piece of crap. And I got the point here, but I also realized that I'm definitely one of the people that Normie uh, should avoid, according to Norman. Norman is pretty much telling Normie to avoid me, and maybe that's why I got confused about that whole third shoe thing. I don't know what it means. I don't have three shoes. When they get back to the awful present, Normie and Rascal are desperately trying to save Norman while also trying not to get beat up by the Goblin Nation toughs. Things would be a lot easier, though, if Rascal was allowed to cut loose, but Normie still won't allow it. He doesn't want to go bad. He's afraid that Rascal will go bad and then that will make Normie himself become bad. Now, almost the entire first half of this issue felt a bit been there, done that, following the pattern pretty much that we had in the last issue. But then we jump into Normie's brain, and at least it changes things up a bit. And while it's very easy to see what Pagnadol is doing with Normie and Rascal here, I liked it. The interactions between the two have been the highlight of the series so far. And in a book like this, that really is a priority. So seeing the two come to an agreement and also a bit of an epiphany for Normie was pretty cool. Now, the epiphany makes you a little bit sad because what Normie realizes is he's been afraid that Rascal will pretty much corrupt him. If we bond, oh my God, Rascal's bad, I'll become bad. Realizes that he's kind of the one who's bad. But saying that, it's not really a shock. It's not a shock when we find this out. And one of the things is when Normie figures it out, you can start working on that. And what I hope is as we go through the series, you end up having a Norman Osborne who's trying to be better. And I hope that he can give that as a good example for his grandson, Normie. Uh, he wasn't doing it in the past, talking about those third shoes or anything. But now I think he could actually be a good influence on him if that is allowed. Now, the Goblin Nation seemed a bit shocked, though. And while I thought we might get a whole new-looking Red Goblin, we get a pretty kick-ass kind of version 2.0. It just seems a little more badass. Actually seems, though, to intrigue and delight Phil Urich more than I thought it would. Uh, and oh, yeah, Normie grabs his grandfather, gets the hell out of Dodge, and takes him to a nearby hospital, thus saving his life. Now, the issue continues with Liz Allen flexing a bit in the scene that felt forced to show how badass she can be, and also to bring up the name Timothy Anders. If you remember, 
that was the classmate of Normie that got involved with fighting those bullies and whatnot. But that name is brought up. It will make more sense why by the end. The issue slows down by the end, though, to give a life lesson to the reader and little Normie, a lady who really could use one of those Osborne third shoes right now, tells Normie that there are no bad dogs, just bad owners. I think we're supposed to be thinking of Normie and Rascal here. I don't know. I'm a dummy. But yeah, I think that's what's going on. The issue then ends with the Goblin Nation wanting to juice up even more than Barry Bonds. And Phil Urich has a name of somebody who may lead them to Normie, Rascal, and all of that. And of course, that name is Timothy Anders. This is a pretty good issue overall. The art was good. And I really am enjoying the Normie-Rascal relationship. And I'm enjoying watching Normie right here kind of grow up and grow into this whole symbiote deal in a way that we don't get to see too much. Normie is doing this with some smarts. He's a little wary of doing it, but he wants to do good. And then he ends up having to do some things because he has to save his grandfather. But I like that whole bit with Normie and Rascal and and Normie trying to control not only just Rascal, but himself by the end. I think that's been done very well. By Alex Pagnadol. And I still like the first issue of the series the best, but this one is at least as good as the last issue. But of course, I can't remember what I gave the last issue, and I'm way too lazy to check right now. So I'm just going to go, and somebody can check me on this. Maybe, you know, you can see. But this really does feel like another 7 out of 10, maybe. I hope that's what I gave the last one. But yeah, this is a 7 out of 10. Somebody can check me on that. And I hope that people continue to read and enjoy this book. I'm all here. Yeah, I still feel silly saying Normie so many times. Even in my notes as I'm going through this, I wrote Normie instead of Norman. It almost tripped me up. Probably noticed that. But hey, here we are. Here we are enjoying books. And I do like this. So I don't know how many people are reading this. I don't have that many people talking to me about it. But for me, I it's one of the books that I enjoy. So I hope that everybody else will give it a shot. All right. And that is the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed everything that you heard. I hope that you go and grab a bunch of these books, check them out, and let me know what you think about that. You can let me know over at Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. You just, you know, go and follow us there. I'll follow you back. And then we could discuss things like comics, life, love, and everything in between. You can go to our website, WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com, where you can get reviews from Gabe, not as sus as with this Predator review, just stop it, but also you can go to our YouTube channel, that's what I end up doing and hanging out a lot there, that is Weird Science Comics, you can get the Marvel reviews, DC, manga, all of that stuff all rolled up into one over there, and then also... Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash weirdscience, where you can check out a lot of previews to all of our shows. Also help us out by subscribing and getting a lot of those shows. Pick a level that's right for you, and away we go. All that's said and done. It's about 3 a.m. I'm very tired. I'm not making much sense suddenly or suddenly, really. I mean, somebody's out there like, what, are you tired all the time? The answer is yes. Thank you for caring about me. But that is it. Thanks, everybody. And I'll talk to you all later. You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. 